0: Well, um, thank you for your prayers. Um, I would like to just read to you from the Word of God now. Jack, could we maybe have the, the verses on the screen, please? We are reading tonight from John 14, and we're going to read verses 1 to 6. We're doing a series in the book of John, Um, through the summertime. And with each week, we're looking at one aspect or one role that Jesus fulfills. And in this particular chapter of John 14, there's six or seven. So David McClay, who's not actually here, but has tasked me with one verse to preach on tonight. But I thought that might be shortchanging you a bit in terms of a reading. So I'm going to give you six, but I'm only going to really talk about one of them. So John 14, verse one says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, those are such well-known verses. And... Um, I know a lot of you here tonight will know me quite well, some of you not so well, but I didn't grow up in a family that went to church, but I remember sometime when I was a teenager, my, my mom was telling me that these were her favorite Bible verses, um, and she was able to say them to me, but from the old authorized version of the Bible, so that version talks about, um, in my father's house are many mansions. Now, we grew up in a tiny wee house, and I used to think the idea of living in a mansion someday would be great, so I was all into that. But, do you know, I think together with Psalm 23, there were probably the bits of the Bible most familiar to her, and probably because they were the ones that we tend to hear read at funeral services. I know we read these words at my mother's funeral some years back. And I heard them read again, even just this past week at another funeral. So they're renowned words of comfort. But I think to try and unpack a wee bit what Jesus is really saying in these words, we need to have a think what is actually happening in this passage and also what is about to happen. What causes Jesus to speak to his friends, the disciples like this? Well, in the book of John so far, we've seen Jesus do some amazing things. He turned water into wine at a wedding. He gave the woman at the well a fresh start. He's healed many people, including a crippled man at Bethesda, a dying son at Capernaum, and a man blind from birth. He's raised Lazarus from the dead. He's fed thousands of people with a small packed lunch, and he's stilled a raging sea. He's shown grace to an adulteress and he's saved her from the punishment of an angry mob. And later on, towards the end, John says, You know, all the books in the world wouldn't have enough room in them to tell all the things that Jesus is. So this is just a handful of the things that he's already been doing. But for us, because of the way the Bible is divided into chapters, there's a break in connection here with what has just happened. And why then Jesus speaks the words that we read at the beginning. And if we go back a little bit into the previous chapter, into chapter 13, we read about Jesus and his friends gathered together to eat a meal. During the annual Passover feast, people got together, the Jewish people got together to celebrate and remember how God had rescued them from being slaves in Egypt. Jesus and his friends and disciples doing that just before he speaks these words. And they're also talking about feet. In a time when people wore sandals and when the streets were dirty, not just from dust, but from other kinds of dirt, somebody had to wash away the dirt. It was a really unpleasant task and usually one reserved for the lowliest of servants. And Jesus quietly, gently has begun to wash his friends' feet, knowing that all the dirt that's on their feet doesn't even begin to compare to the caked-on invisible stuff that's around their hearts. One by one, Jesus washed everyone's feet and he talked to them about the need to be made clean and to serve one another. Now, if you were here this morning, Mark unpacked that story and that chapter so well um, and at great greater length. So I'm just mentioning it because that's the context that these words are spoken in. But there was something else playing out in that room. There's also indication of a traitor amongst them. Somebody had made a very bad plan. And no one else knew about that. But Jesus knew, and so did Judas. And after a little bit, he's about to slip into the night to do his very worst. But the friends have eaten their meal together, and we now know it as the Last Supper. And it's what we think about and we remember when we celebrate communion in church. But as they eat the meal and as they talk, Jesus explains that his body is about to be broken and his blood poured out and that that is somehow how God is going to rescue the broken world. It's an unusual, disturbing kind of after dinner conversation. That's usually the bits where you get the after eights out and you start chatting about, I don't know for us maybe, Boris and Donald and, you know, other things like that. But not for the disciples. It's not the usual kind of after dinner stuff that's happening. And for Peter, there's a simple and specific warning that despite his expression of loyalty, he's going to deny even knowing Jesus shortly after this. So... Lingering in the atmosphere. We have betrayal. We have impending denial and failure. And the anticipated loss of a loved one. So not a comfortable kind of evening. Jesus is within 24 hours of a horrendous death. And he's sitting with a handful of his friends. And a traitor. And setting aside his own burden in the most unusual after-dinner chat. He turns to comfort and to encourage them. And these are the words, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. It's hard to imagine what must have been going through the disciples' minds during all of this. But Jesus is, as Jesus always does, speaking into the immediate He's speaking into what is happening there and then. And he's also speaking into our immediate 2,000 years later. Troubled hearts. I can find at least three troubling things that might be going on here, and there's probably more. But things that would make your heart tremble. And I think the first one of those is the impending loss that they're about to experience with the bodily absence of Jesus their friend Jesus is going to leave them and that in itself would reduce their world to rubble and to ruin and then they'd also have to cope with the manner in which he was leaving they'd see him betrayed by one of their own arrested and condemned to the most terrible death Those of us who've experienced the loss or death of a much-loved one will understand the pain of heart and grief. When that person's no longer physically with us and we can't talk to them anymore, we can't hear their voice, we can't touch them, we can't sense their presence. And no one's exempt from this. Nothing can keep it away it comes to us all at some stage. Painful, searing loss. And maybe for some people, you haven't yet experienced that, but you have experienced loss of another kind. Maybe it's loss of health, or employment, or relationship, or whatever. And then secondly, there's fear. For the disciples, the sense that Jesus physically going away from them. Surely they must have thought that whatever Jesus had done in and through them might also be lost. And for all of them, especially for Peter, the anxiety of wondering if you really are going to deny knowing Jesus and even potentially losing your faith must have weighed heavily. And I think the third thing that was obvious to me is the prospect for them of the ongoing trouble and the persecution that would be likely to follow them when Jesus was away. And in the multitude of all of these troubled thoughts within them, Jesus, at this moment, is not expressing his own Concern at how he's going to cope with going to the cross. But his concern is for his friends. And how they're going to cope. And it's the trouble in their minds that troubles him. And he addresses this not just with those amazing, comforting, soothing words. But he gives a remedy. Believe in God believe also in me. Jesus is saying, don't worry or surrender to your fear. You believe in God. You believe in the God who rescued you from Egypt. We've just been celebrating that. You know him. You have history with him. That you've believed in this God of rescue that does not change, that is forever the same. Now trust and believe also in me, because there's not just past history for your ancestors with this God, but there's an ongoing present relationship with him because of me. Believe. How are the disciples going to do that? And how should we do that? I don't think Jesus is saying, numb yourself to the pain. Don't worry about it. Don't feel it. I don't think Jesus is saying that at all. In fact, he felt pain acutely. We, we read that in the story of Lazarus when he wept at the pain that his friends were in. And we see this the whole way through the life of Jesus where he stops doing what he's doing to deal with a, a widow whose son has just died, or he turns aside from what he's about to do to deal with somebody else in pain. Jesus isn't saying, don't feel your pain. He felt pain, and he's our good example. But I think what he is saying is, trust me, believe me. Because to believe in him is to trust and believe in God the Father. And for the disciples in this immediate time, they know there's history with him. In fact, a few chapters back in John chapter 10, in verse 30, Jesus has already said, I and the Father are one. And that statement had so enraged the Jews that they picked up rocks to hurl at him, to put him to death there and then, because for daring to say that he and the Father were one, faith. Believe in God and believe in his son, Jesus. That's the remedy for troubled hearts. And that often requires a turning in our thinking. In the middle of trouble, Jesus is saying, God is here. He encourages his friends to recognize in the middle of their trouble the very presence of God is manifested in the Son, Jesus. And instead of fixating on the past or yearning for perhaps better times to come into the future, we can experience him in the here and in the now. But what then when Jesus is no longer amongst his disciples? and what when he's no longer bodily present with us what do we do then there's so much more in this passage but jumping ahead to verse 16 jesus makes another promise and he says that even though he's leaving his friends and will no longer be on the earth that the father will send another to them that the father will send another helper some translations say another comforter to be with you forever. This one is not ever going to go away. This is the most amazing truth. This comforter is never ever going to leave. No matter how we feel or whether we recognize that he is with us or not, he's not going anywhere. Jesus has promised he'll stay with us forever. And Jesus promises them another just like him, the Holy Spirit. He tells us that we have the Holy Spirit not just with us, but for those who love him and trust him within us. And he'll be closer than he has ever been, and nothing will ever separate us again for he makes his home in us. Way back at the beginning of the reading tonight, John 14, verse 2, in my father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, I love the idea that Jesus is preparing a place for us. I don't understand what that's going to look like, if I'm being honest, but I've thought a lot about it. And I like to think that Jesus, who knows each one of us as individuals, knows exactly what is going to work best for us. So whether you're a minimalist or whether you love a bit of stuff around you, what your colors are, what the shapes you like, I like to think that he's got all that sorted and that it's an individual thing to each one of us. During um, our time, Chris and I, years ago, were in YWAM, missionary organization, and spent about five years living in community. And sometimes that meant sharing spaces with lots and lots of other people. And I remember at, at the, the training school that we did initially, the first level training school, if you like, I was in a dormitory room with about 15 other females. Now there wasn't a lot of privacy and neither was it very individual. We actually were in bunk beds that you know were stacked three high and I'd never seen those before. And it wasn't too bad if you're on the bottom bunk. And it wasn't even that bad if you're on the top bunk, as long as you didn't mind heights. But if you're on the middle, you couldn't even sit up. So there wasn't much space and much room. And I remember one day, um, there'd been an issue with one of the bunks. And they'd had to take them apart. Um, and somebody had put them back the wrong way around. So we didn't realize till really late at night, the middle bunk was way too close to the top bunk. And there was a tall girl on, on that training school called Jean from Glasgow. And Jean from Glasgow couldn't even get into her bunk that night. But it's too late to do anything about that. So we had to kind of, you know, hold her horizontally and slide her into the bunk. And then slide her out again in the morning until they got the bunk sorted out. Living in community can be great. but it's not, not much uh, space for individual taste or, 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 or that kind of thing. But also, one of the values of, of that organisation was hospitality. And it was, there was great emphasis put on caring for people who came in to be with us, whether they were visitors or newcomers or whatever, um, that they were to have a feeling of being welcomed in, because it wasn't just about the place that was prepared, the clean sheets and the well-stocked fridge. And maybe the little card with the Bible verse on it, it was about the spirit of being welcomed in, sense of being known. I think that's what happens when we get to know Jesus and we find that we have this home in him. Not just the one that we're looking forward to in the future, but now that he knows us so well. He welcomes us in as individuals. See, Jesus' going away was to go through death and resurrection to make us ready. But not just to go to heaven, where there is a prepared place for us, but to enable us to become his home, his dwelling place here, while we're still on the earth. The church, the body of Christ, is now his dwelling place. So each believer, each one who loves and trusts Jesus, is now one of the many dwelling places that make up God's house on the earth. Maybe we're one of the rooms. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 6 says, Do you not know that you're the house of God and his Holy Spirit lives in you? You don't just have his presence with you, but you have his presence in you. And through you, others can experience his peace and his welcome and his comfort. A lot of people in the world that we live in, a lot of the people who are a lot more expert than I would be in things of sociology and even medicine, would say that anxiety is one of the main things that plagues people in the 21st century. And there's a phrase that's been bandied about a lot in relation to the church. And John Mark Comer actually refers to it. He talks about that we have the ability, because of who Jesus is, because of the Holy Spirit living in us, we have the ability to be a non-anxious presence In a world that's full of anxiety. Not because we're not troubled or don't have those troubles, but because we have the presence of somebody in us who can dissipate that trouble and bring comfort and peace in the middle of it. Do you know Jesus in that way? do you believe that he's God's son who died for you so you can be brought close to God? And more than that, if you do believe that, have you actually done anything with that? Have you told him that you want to follow him and you you want him to make his home in you? See, last week at one of the morning services, um, I was at the front, and the prayer ministry team is often at the end of the service up the front here. And I was chatting to somebody and praying for somebody. And there was somebody else trying to get my attention. Um, and I realized that there was something happening in the room. And actually, there was a visitor in our midst. But she'd been to church a few times, but not somebody who would be here all the time. And I knew to look at her that there was something happening with her last Sunday, that there was something going on, and there were some tears. Um, But by the time I had extracted myself and got down the back, she'd gone. And I actually went on out into the car park thinking I might just catch her. And I could just about see her down the bottom of the streets. Um, Now, those of you who know me know I'm not a great runner. You know, it's not really. If you see me running, you know there's something up. It's usually something to do with the Lord. (laughs) Nobody else can get me running um but I managed to get to the bottom of the street just about the chemist shop um and I just spoke to her for a few minutes and she was really quite emotional so I didn't press any great conversation but I just I asked her I introduced myself and um said a very short prayer and said I'll be at church next Sunday I'd love if you come back next Sunday I'd love to chat to you and she was here this morning again and she came up at the end of the service And um, I asked her what had been happening. And I suspected that the Lord had been speaking to her and showing her who Jesus was. And she did. She told me that she, she had heard the Lord speaking to her and she'd given her life to Jesus. And you know what she said to me? I have had the best week of my life. Isn't that amazing? Because God has made his home in her. She has had the best week of her life. I was so blessed to hear that. Because she's discovered that the way to the Father is through Jesus. That's not in the bit I'm supposed to talk about tonight, but I thought I'd throw that in there anyway. Jesus could have lived amongst his family and friends for a short time. And then he could have died. And atonement still would have been made. We still could have been made right with God. Even if he just spent a little bit of time here and died and rose again. But Jesus didn't do that. He lived with us deeply and he entered our trouble. He entered our suffering. Ours became his. And you know, he could have loved us from afar, but he didn't do that. He took on our humanity. And all that goes with that, he didn't just die for us, but he stands with us as well. And that has to be the greatest comfort, the greatest strengthening that we can have in the middle of all the trouble that we might face. And all I can really hope to do tonight is to point you to him Because if if you don't know this Jesus like that, if you don't know Jesus, why would you not want to know Jesus? I don't understand. Why would you not want to know this Jesus? But you can begin to know him tonight if you don't. And there'll be people here later who would love to help you to begin to do that. I'd love the band to just come back up. We're just, starting to finish, have a little bit more to go but if you're just here that'd be great Um, some of us, quite a lot of us were away coming into last week at conference in Sligo I know a lot of you were there and during the course of that week I prayed um, a couple of times with someone there who'd had foot surgery and hadn't been able to walk properly for some time and the foot wasn't mending well And we prayed. In the middle of their trouble, we prayed. And they knew that God was with them. But just Monday past, I had a text from them. And they'd been to their hospital appointment, And they just texted this. Bone perfectly fused. Can walk. Can go on holiday. Even the okay to swim. Which is great news. And just after that then his wife who had driven him to the appointment sent another little text and she said this. Amazing news. It's all worked out okay. And then she said this. We worshipped all the way home. And that really stuck in my mind because one day Jesus is coming back He's promised us that. Further on in this chapter, he promises that he is coming back to take us to the place he's prepared for us. Wouldn't it be powerful to be able to say of our journeying here on earth, even in the middle of the trouble, we worshipped all the way home? Don't think that God will not change your heart if not your circumstances. Because that's what happens when you grab hold of his word and you believe what he says. And you wrestle what he says and the truth of that into the stuff of all that it means to be human and to be troubled. The original language of that first verse, do not let your heart be troubled, the Aramaic, for it is Let not your heart flutter. Let not your hearts flutter. Don't fix in the middle of the trouble. Believe. Because we can experience the kind of peace that persists regardless of grief or thunderstorms or trouble or whatever that looks like. And because of this, we can worship all the way home till we get to be with him.